Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Welcome to part two of my chat with retired Metropolitan Police Sergeant Eric Stewart, QPM. In this episode, Eric takes us through the moment he and his colleagues watch from the roof of New Scotland Yard, the red arrows roar across the skies of London, confirming the news of a successful London Olympics bid. But then, not 24 hours later, the tragedy that was the 7-7 terror attacks that changed the face of London forever. So then, after leaving air support, um, it was a rather quite fascinating operation that was commenced uh, by yourself after what appears to be quite a lot of internal lobbying uh, to pressure to, to, to action, um, some, some issues that you had identified, which was uh, Operation Gentian, which is obviously the name of your company now. Tell us about that operation and what led to you uh, being involved in it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you in some high-level detail because, frankly, there are some of the details that some of it could still be used today if it was necessary to repeat that operation where it was. And it was the Broadwater Farm, and we had to do something about the drugs and guns that were being used. Uh, and so we set up this covert intelligence team, a covert intelligence cell. I moved away from Tottenham into a covert office under a cover story, actually moved back over to Hendon into some secure offices back at the police college. And we took the best part of six months to set up this operation because 
we were going to be putting officers into an incredibly dangerous position. And we had to have a rescue package in place. And that rescue package was declared to be within three seconds. We had to be able to rescue any officers who were doing the test purchases of drugs or trying to buy firearms and be there with the firearms teams within within three or four seconds. And we'd done all the normal stuff. We'd try to take over flats. We'd sat in the back of covert vans, which the the people on that estate recognised straight away and were attacked. One was tipped on its side. One of our detective chief inspectors on surveillance who came out just for a night just to, to see what we were going through suffered a heart attack and we lost him off the operation for quite some time. But the operation ran live for a year with me as part of the rescue team intending to be able to deploy with a firearms team and rescue any officers that had been compromised and potentially taken hostage or being attacked by the, the criminals. We identified the drug source, we identified the firearm source, we identified the majority of those who were involved in it. And 15 months after we started that operation, we had a coordinated attack on the estate, bringing officers in in covert, large covert vehicles. Dozens of officers literally in the backs of vans and lorries, and the estate was dealt with. The people that we wanted were arrested, the vast majority convicted and went to prison. And some of those I know from my previous work were some of those that had been involved in the attack on Keith Blakelock for which they'd never been convicted of. So in some way, I guess I got, not revenge, but I got some justice. Some of the people went to prison, though not ever the attack on Keith. But it was a fascinating operation. And as you say, by chance, the the name that was picked out of the hat that day was Gentian. So when I retired and set up my own company, and I'm still not quite sure why, I decided that Gentian would be the name that we would give to the crowd management company that I set up. Maybe it just keeps it in my memory, I don't know. No, I think it's lovely. And I think um, shortly after that, obviously you recognised importantly that you wouldn't be able to return to policing on the front line within that particular area because obviously you had been compromised and the ramifications to potentially your personal safety and security could be compromised and the, and the, and the ramifications of that being quite significant. So then you moved on just in that period of covert work to the Euro 96 Championships. So what does one do in a covert role at the Euro 96 Championships? Well, we'd finished the... Well, we hadn't actually finished the operation because we were still packaging up all the evidence and preparing the court cases. When we were contacted, we had a covert team, we had an office, we had comms, we had cars, uh, and we'd worked together very closely as a small team of seven at the time. And we were contacted because it would appear that somebody had overlooked the fact that there needed to be some sort of intelligence package around the Euro 96 Championships. The the whole of European football was coming to London, to Wembley. Uh, England would be participating. And of course, not only is there disorder between England football fans, particularly during the 80s and 90s, but given the opportunity to fight against fans from France and Germany and Belgium and Holland, our fans would certainly take that opportunity. Inside Wembley, England followers, many without tickets, storm the turnstiles. A dangerous, hostile environment for fans attending the nation's biggest game. English supporters made sure their voices were heard. English fans were out to settle scores with their Russian rivals. 
So it was about targeting the higher level football hooligans, not the soldiers on the street who fight. There was something going on in the background. There was a level of coordination, a level of organisation that wasn't fully understood. So that team, and we'd done all the things we needed to do, we'd start to grow our hair and we dressed down, so we were able to mix a little more easily. That team started looking at who were these street fighters going back to? We would follow them from the fights and see who they were speaking to, go into the pubs and where where in the pubs are they going? Who's sitting at that table in the corner that you seem to be need to be invited to? And it was then identifying from the major clubs, particularly in London, who were pulling the strings. And the, the staggering thing for me was that these were not what people might assume, the, the builders, the scaffolders, the labourers, the unemployed. That's not who was coordinating this level of football hooliganism. These were white collar workers. They were quite high level staff. They were quite middle managers and higher in good organisations, in banks. There were people from the health service. There were people from police forces. And it was those people that we then went on to target to get the evidence to find out exactly what they were doing to then raid their homes with warrants to arrest them and make sure that they were either locked up or they were so tied down during the European Championships that they couldn't pull the strings that they would normally pull. So some of them had bail restrictions that were so strict that they had to stay outside London on the day of any European Championship game and sign on at a police station four five times a day so that we could keep tabs on them and know exactly where we were. And it, it worked. We had very, very little disorder in the 96 championships until the semi-final when England were knocked out. And there's some spontaneous disorder around Trafalgar Square that lasted an hour, an hour and a half. And it all settled down. Back to that corner! Back to that corner! Hold it there! Hold it there! And it went incredibly well. Um, but it, it did give me a real insight into football the policing of football and I had been doing that for some time in Tottenham as well I've been an intelligence spotter again part-time one day a week or one day every two weeks following the football hooligans and seeing what they were up to as they traveled away to Liverpool and Manchester and Sheffield and other places so I had a really good insight then of, of what was going on in football as well. An interesting question around this because often we would um, reflect on antisocial behavior in football in England as for instance, Chelsea supporters versus West Ham supporters. When it comes to the Euro 96, when you're looking at England as a football team, do these fans all come together and say, listen, let's forget about our disagreements at a local level. We're now going to go international and we're going to take on other countries. Is, is that kind of the mentality that kind of goes on? Absolutely. There's a, there's a psychology there. And we, you know, as I've worked more and more with crowds and started looking at crowds, crabby heads and crowd psychology, one of the things we talk about is the in-group and the out-group. So if you're a Manchester United fan, every other Manchester United fan is your in-group and everybody from Leeds or Sheffield or Liverpool is your out-group. But suddenly when England are playing Germany, if you support England, that's the in-group. And it's irrelevant whether you're from Tottenham or Arsenal or Chelsea, you're England. So you are the new in-group and the out-group is Germany or Belgium or Holland or France. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a total change when that takes place and those fans will who would fight each other will stand shoulder to shoulder and fight together against a common enemy as the as they are out group and is there ever a period in that sort of covert policing role with football fans because 
your normal covert operations when you're dealing with nefarious individuals, whether engaged in drug trafficking or firearms or whatever the case may be, they're very aware of the people they have around them and ultimately question continually, are these people old Bill? You know, are these undercover detectives? Was there ever a time when your, your covert policing unit was discovered by these football hooligans? Did they ever kind of pick up on that? No, they didn't. And in fairness, I wouldn't call what we did covert in the level that we were trying to embed ourselves within the gangs. I mean, those officers that do that, both with football and with drug dealers and with firearms dealers, are exceptionally brave. We had neither the time nor the training or the experience to be able to do that. So the observations were normally from further away. And when we would establish a pattern of behaviour, so perhaps if a group always used the same table in a public house, then we could use more technical surveillance. We could establish that in the week between games or the two weeks between games, and we could establish some technical um, devices. But the other thing we could do was call on what we would call the level one covert officers who could get even closer and listen to some of those conversations. To the best of my knowledge, we were never compromised. To the best of my knowledge, we were never even questioned. We would be in the pubs, but nobody ever looked at us in a way that made us wonder whether or not they were suspicious of our activity. We didn't really get that close. We, we tried to make sure we didn't. A large part of your policing outside of um, these early covert roles has been community policing. It has been at the heart of a lot of what you've done. You've very much enjoyed being on the front line, making that difference and ultimately supporting people at their greatest time of need. And, and one particular community that you did support for a period of time was the, was, was the Jewish community in Stamford Hill where you were community policing. And that was during a period where certain... Um, groups were being targeted by David Copeland in 1999 and you had to have some very difficult conversations with the chief rabbi within your community. Talk us through the challenges of policing within a community where there is a strong presence of a particular background or ethnicity and then having to have some difficult conversations about their meetings and and, and having to be very careful about their, their personal safety and security. Yeah, I think for those that know North London, Stamford Hill is quite famous because it's got uh, a very, very high uh, um, number of Orthodox Jews, extreme Orthodox Jews, in that we're talking about the Hasidic Jews. Golders Green has got a high Jewish community, but it's a mix of Orthodox and non-Orthodox and practising and non-practising. But go over to Stamford Hill, and it's almost exclusively Hasidic Orthodox Jews, those that you would recognise from the black coats, sometimes the long white stockings, obviously the, the twirled hair, and very, very devout and very, very religious. And I think this is one of those, you know, the story that I think you're referring to is one of those where you get out what you put in. When I was asked to take on that role, I was introduced to a rabbi who became my own rabbi. Uh, and I was also introduced and adopted, if you like, by what we call a Diane, who's a a rabbi's rabbi, but also understands the rabbinical law, the technical aspects of the Torah and the law. And I spent a weekend living with them in their houses to fully understand what was going on and their religion and their ways and their, their means. And I think the fact that I took that time and effort to invest in them meant that they gave an awful lot back. They wanted me to understand the community as best they could so that I could do my job to the best of my ability. And that particular year, 1999, 
and David Copeland, the, the nail bomber, as he was sometimes referred to, and what in policing terms became known as Operation Marathon. He'd planted bombs in Brixton and then in Brick Lane in the East End. So he targeted the black community down in Brixton. He targeted the Asian and Indian communities in the East End of London. And then he bombed the Admiral Duncan pub which was a very, very well-known gay pub in central London. A device packed with nails exploded in a street market in Brixton, injuring nearly 40 people, including two children. So could you tell me, please, why? I knew that people would be hurt, people would be killed, but I had to do it. I just wanted to leave my mind. I just had to do it. It was my destiny. What did that mean to you, for putting nails in the bomb? It made it smash windows out, stick into people, pain people. People. There was good intelligence that the next target would be an ethnic minority and high on that list were the Jewish community. So Stamford Hill and Stoke Newington were probably going to be high on his target list. And the, the bombings were taking place at weekends. The Admiral Duncan took place on a Friday night and that was the first one that hadn't taken place on the weekend. But the challenge if you work with the Orthodox community is they will not carry a mobile phone they won't even pick up a phone unless there is an imminent threat to life. The laws don't permit them from sundown on Friday to sunset on Sunday, uh, on Saturday, sorry, to do any form of mechanical work. And that it's, it's as much as they can knock on the door, but they can't ring the doorbell because it's an electrical device. So we had this challenge of a potential bomber. We put in tons of extra covert surveillance. We put in CCTVs everywhere we could, and we had extra monitoring in place and people looking at cameras. We had plainclothes officers all over the place. But the biggest number of eyes and ears that would be walking backwards and forwards to synagogue on Friday night and during Saturday were the community. But if they saw something, unless they understood it and knew what it was and considered it an imminent threat to life, they couldn't tell us. So I went to see the what they call the Beth Din, which is the rabbinical council for Stamford Hill, and presented to them the issue that I had and asked, having done a lot of research and spoken with a couple of the rabbis and the Diane, asked for something to be done that had never, ever been done in the UK before, which was for the rabbinical council to declare something called Pekunapesh, which means the Sabbath rules or some of the Sabbath rules can be lifted. And after a two-hour presentation, discussion, questions, and then being asked to sit outside for a further hour, I was called back in asked if I understood the consequences of this breach of the tour and breach of the Sabbath. And I, I actually thought I was in for a real dressing down. You know, you don't understand us, you don't understand that community. It was quite the opposite. It was thanks for highlighting the issues and doing the research. And they declared Purnapesh from the Thursday afternoon and it went out to all the Jewish community. And for the first time ever, the Orthodox Jews of Stanford Hill and then Golders Green, because the message was passed, carried their mobile phones and were given a full briefing as to what to be looking out for in terms of suspicious activity and suspicious devices. In terms of pride in jobs that I did through my policing service, that's definitely one that sticks out. Because without having done the work and the investment into the community in the first place, I don't think I would have ever achieved that objective. And then you spent three years as the planning officer overseeing the implementation of, you know, 
drugs, firearms, protests and events and various other operations in between. What attracted you to that planning environment? Because it's often the unsung hero, I think, of most operations. You see the the glitz and the glamour of firearms officers and flying squad officers and all the detectives running into buildings. But there's a lot of planning that goes on behind those very large operations of which you were part of. Yeah, I mean, what, what led me to do it? What led me to do it was a motorcycle accident that separated my pelvis from my spine and a, a lack of ability to be able to walk for a few months. So I had to go into an office job. And the office job that came available was the ops planning job. But I'd already had in 99 with that experience of putting together the response to the nail bomb into Operation Marathon, working with multiple agencies around the police, getting those covert and overt CCTV cameras, working with undercover officers, but working with Scotland Yard's public order planning unit and understanding the complexity of, of operations across London and how they came together fascinated me. And so when that job came up in 2001 to do the ops planning job in Hackney, I jumped at the chance and applied along with half a dozen others, went through a series of uh, both interviews and practical exercises where you were given envelopes with some intelligence in, but you then had to question and research and go onto the intelligence system and police national computer to find other information, sitting in a room for a couple of hours at a time, logging, and then preparing a briefing sheet. And at the end of it, you had to walk into a chief inspector, A, to justify the um, research that you'd done, and then ask for the money and the resources to go and put the job together to actually deliver it. And that was, that was what I did for the next four years. The, the actual interview process, the all-day selection process for that, prepared me so well for what I was going to do. And we did everything from music concerts on Hackney Marshes, which I'd never done before and what led me into what I do now, through to really complex firearms operations. Automatic number plate recognition was just coming into effect, so we would mount ANPRs in cars on busy roads where we knew there were likely to be gangs crossing territory and then large operations with up to 200, 250 officers to follow them off, catch them, detain them. These were armed operations and then immediately affect searchers at their home addresses before they got the chance to warn everybody else. So we had pots of resource scattered all over London ready to go and search these people's houses after we caught the people that we suspected were involved and then got the evidence from them in the car that night. It was great. It was great fun, but incredibly complex and hard work. And I think my wife probably took more calls from me on a Friday afternoon to say, guess what? I'm on all night again, having worked all day. I think that period of three or four years was probably the most frequent time I phoned her and said, I'm not going to be home. And I might not be home for a day or two, the way things are going. I want to talk about two particular events which you've been involved in the planning of. The first one being probably what is the largest policing response to an event every year, and that is the Notting Hill Carnival. Um, it's an incredibly busy time for the Metropolitan Police in London. Uh, you know, there are good years, there are bad years in terms of having to intervene in, in public disorder. The costumes, the colour and the crowds. Notting Hill Carnival in full flow. But tell us about having to plan and then execute on what is an incredibly challenging period for the Met in, in providing policing service to the public, ultimately in keeping everybody safe during celebrations. Again, I think the first stage of planning is research. You know, what, what is Notting Hill all about? And if anybody is trying to get involved in planning and meeting with the community and doesn't understand its 
intrinsic links with slavery and the celebrations from the freedom of slavery, then I think you're doing yourself and the community a disservice. It's really, I mean, even if you look at some of the the words that are around Notting Hill Carnival, the start of Carnival is called Juve or New Day. And that is a traditional event that predates slavery, which the slaves then weren't allowed to celebrate and then came back with a bang when slavery finished. So understanding the aspects of Carnival so that when you go into meetings, you can confidently speak with the Carnivalists and understand what they know. Now, I can never get into their skin. I can never get into the skin of someone whose ancestors may have been taken into slavery. I simply can't walk in their shoes. What I can do, though, is try to understand what it is that they go through. So research. I, I spent weeks reading books about slavery and about carnivals and about Notting Hill Carnival particularly, and then learning from the community. So that, to me, was the first stage of planning. But you're planning it where some of the community just simply do not want to speak with the police. Most do. Most understand the need for policing and the need for the involvement of the local authority. But every time I went to a meeting, those meetings were two, three, four times a week, there would be someone who would throw a table over or pick up a chair and make threats against us, the council and the police, trying to help their community. Now, the great thing was I never had to intervene because the community would always intervene and deal with that themselves. But it just left that sense of tension and some animosity, knowing that even through the planning meetings, there was disagreement and tension with the police. And you know, to your opening statement, you said there were some good years and some bad years. I think every year is a good year and a bad year. Every year there are 95% of the people that go, 99% of the people that go, 99% of the Sunday, and maybe 90% of the Monday, it's great. I love Notting Hill Carnival. I love the noise. I love the music. I love the food. I love the fact that everybody's enjoying themselves. But then there is this element that uses the cover, the anonymity of large crowds to come and settle scores. There are, unfortunately, young gangs that come with knives to meet other young gangs. And it's generally them that get hurt, but then innocent people get caught up in the middle of it. A 16-year-old boy has been questioned by police after a man was stabbed at the Notting Hill Carnival. It happened as the two-day event was drawing to a close on Monday night. The injured man, who's 20, is in a serious but stable condition in hospital. And at least four people have been arrested over the attack. So it's an incredibly complex operation with a fascinating history that's so important to the community but that many, many police officers just don't understand how important it is to community. And understandably, they focus on the last few hours, the police officers focus on the last few hours, where they're likely to come under attack. So the whole day is spent with an anxiety and attention, knowing that later on you might have to get shields out and start charging the crowd as they throw bricks and bottles at you again, and, and knives and machetes are being flashed around. But it's a fascinating event, and I loved my time planning it going to move on to probably what I think could be the second biggest highlight in your career often described by uh, as a touchstone moment was described by assistant commissioner Neil Basu last week's episode in 2005 uh, we were awarded the Olympics and as part of that uh, of awarding there was the torch relay where you um, commonly referred to as the torch chief of staff um, which is a, a, re- a really great anecdote, which I've read through in, in, in some stories that you've sent through to me. Tell us about 
the awarding of the Olympics in 2005, the torch relay, and what would have been such an incredible honour to be able to plan that, which led to you being awarded the Queen's Police Medal. Yeah, I think the actual awarding of the Olympics was an incredible day. And I, I wish someone had had a camera and captured where we were because we knew at Scotland Yard there was a little bit of the plan that the announcement would be made to Trafalgar Square and the red arrows were lined up ready precisely for the time of the announcement and would fly over Trafalgar Square. But that also meant they would fly directly over the top of Scotland Yard. And someone found the key to the roof. I don't know who, and I will never name that person because we shouldn't have been up there. <laughs> but there was about 30 of us up on the roof. And we had a small radio. And there seemed to be a, a bit of a time delay. We could see the red arrows in the distance. And the only difference between success and failure, as far as the red arrows was concerned, was nine aircraft with white smoke for failure. Nine aircraft with red, white, and blue for success. So we stood on the roof listening to this radio transmission that seemed to have an awful delay. And then two, literally less than a second apart, looking at the aircraft flying towards us, suddenly there was the most enormous roar. The radio was still building up to the announcement, was still seconds away, but there was this enormous roar from Trafalgar Square of 10, 15, 20,000 people who had just heard that we'd got the Olympics. And instantaneously, the aircraft, red, white, and blue smoke came on. And we never heard the radio transmission. I never heard the BBC announce what was going on because the roar of the crowd in Trafalgar Square, the roar of the aircraft going overhead with red, white, and blue, and the roar of 30 people on the roof of Scotland Yard meant that we never actually heard the official announcement. At the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012, are awarded to the city of London. Above London, the red arrows filled the skies with red, white and blue. A vapour trail of triumph stretching all the way to Stratford in East London, the venue for the 2012 Olympics. And we came downstairs and sat in the office and all looked at each other and went, wow, we've got a little bit of work to do now. Not only have we got our normal Notting Hill and New Year's Eve and all the other celebrations to sort out, and the protests and demonstrations, we've got to start looking at the Olympics. Now, a few years beforehand, I'd been in central London with one of my daughters and I'd seen Sir Steve Redgrave run with the Olympic torch up the mall. And I'd never, ever heard of the Olympic torch before. I thought that was an incredible day. It was a really moving day, a really emotional day. And I didn't even know at that point whether that was something that happened for every Olympics. So I went downstairs, I got on the computer, I started researching, realised that we were going to have to plan an Olympic torch relay. And I sat and I wrote a briefing sheet of two pages. And the very next morning, I walked into my boss's office, into the superintendent's office, and said, Olympic torch relay, I want it. And he said, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Olympics is years away. We'll start talking about that in due course. <laughs> and as we talked, and as I started, I said, let me just read you a few facts and how many people come to see this thing and how it's the build-up and it's, it's seen as the symbol of peace preceding the Olympics. And his eyes kind of glazed over like, God, he's seven years away, Eric, leave me alone. The windows of his office shook. They literally rattled. And we both looked at each other, and someone came running in from next door and said, did you hear that? Well, we didn't hear anything, but the windows rattled. And that was the first of the bombs going off. 
if you remember the day after the olympics were announced in london was the day the tube and buses were bombed as part of that massive wave of terrorism seven seven yeah wow Breaking news we're getting from the PA Newswire that there's been reports of an explosion outside Liverpool Street Station. That, of course, in the east end of London. I've had a report that there was an explosion at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. Uh, we've, heard, uh, we've had a report of a bang west of Edgware Road. We've got a report of another explosion at Liverpool Street as well. But that's what we're thinking, you know, is that terrorist incident. But yeah. the, bang, the bang, I was up in Edgware House, it was terrific, I'll tell you. Yeah. What the hell was that? Definitely looks like an explosion, yeah. Something's gone badly wrong down there, and um, we really don't know at the moment. It's a loud bang. It was an act of mindless savagery. Four bombs detonated on the London transport system, causing chaos and confusion. It was the morning after we were granted the Olympics, and the boss looked at me and said, I think we need to put this aside for a bit. <laughs> yes, boss, we do. And that was it. That was another three days of not getting home as we responded. We didn't go out, you know, me going out to the scene of a bombing is a waste of time, what can I do? I'm another uniform on the street. But what we did know immediately was hundreds, thousands of officers were going to have to be deployed. Officers were going to have to be called in from all over London and from elsewhere. Specialist officers were going to have to be there. It was going to be a prolonged operation. So things like providing water, providing shelter, providing food for those officers that were going to be on the ground getting officers fed around London to bring them in and then working out the transport, the coaches, the minibuses, the carriers, all of that logistics sat within our office. So it was three days of constant work to get that ready. And at the same time, that later that afternoon, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Andy Sharp, who was a, a fantastic sergeant in that office and sadly, unfortunately, died just after Christmas this year, came and said, on top of everything else, we've got to build a family assistance centre. We've been given a venue, a sports hall. We have to have somewhere where all the families can have the news broken to them that they've lost their loved ones. Can you give me a hand? And that was it. For the next 24 hours, we were on our hands and knees laying carpets, building furniture, getting flowers delivered, making um, small rooms, prayer rooms. Uh, and it was incredible. And the whole Olympic thing just disappeared off our radar in a flash and bang of four different sites around London and then the logistics and the coordination that came afterwards. Just very quickly, Eric, what strikes me there as being quite incredible is the jubilate. There is nothing more patriotic than the red arrows flying over the mail, over Buckingham Palace. It's what every major event has as its penultimate ending. You know, it's just, it's Britain in a, in a small two-minute nutshell than flying over. So to go from that to three days later or 72 hours later, the devastation and the the hurt of going through 7-7 must have been an emotional roller coaster for yourselves as well as thousands of Londoners who were affected by it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was literally, it wasn't even 24 hours. Um, the announcement was made on the afternoon of the sixth of the, the Olympics, and the bombs went on on the morning uh, went off on the morning of the seventh. So went home on the night of the sixth to sit down with my wife and say, "I've moved into the right job, but just at the right time because I'd only begun in Scotland Yard at the beginning of that year. I'm in the right place at the right time again. I, I, I seem to have this ability or this luck that finds me in the right place at the right time, and 
we celebrated that night. We had a bottle of wine and we've got the Olympics and it's something I'm going to be involved in. I, I made a decision there and then. I was due to retire in 2010, but there was no way I was retiring in 2020 with the Olympics in 2012. So we made that decision that night and then went back into work the next morning to start the planning. And as you say, switch, click. The world changed and London changed. And the, the consequences went on for days, weeks, months, years. The, the consequences in London now are still with us to some extent. So that, but that's what cops do. You go from great calls with really nice people to horrible calls with people that have been badly hurt or killed. And then you're knocking on someone's door to break those, that awful news to a family that someone's died in a car wreck or in a, a shooting or a stabbing or whatever. And then within a couple of hours later, you have to pick yourself back up and go and deal with a victim of a routine burglary and make them feel better. It's it's just what we do all the time. So the, the, the torch relay, um, in summary, was an incredible success. You know, 14 million people coming out to see it over 70, de- over 70 days. And the team that you built and that you led won the Metropolitan Police Services Team of the Year in 2012. That must have been an incredibly proud moment. I, of, of all the proud moments, and I've got plenty of proud moments in my service and, and since, but yeah, of all the, the moments of pride to, I didn't even know we'd been nominated. That was the best part about it. I had no idea. It hadn't even occurred to me. I, I didn't know someone had suggested that our team, which was the planning team, the motorcycle escort team, the senior management team that, that did the uh, on-the-ground stuff, and the security team, those officers that ran around the Olympic torch, that we had been nominated as one big team to, to go in for that award. And then to actually be given it was an incredibly proud moment, and one that I will definitely, definitely take to my grave too. If, if you are a, a supervisor in any job, but particularly in policing, building teams is what it's all about. You know, We talked earlier about leadership looking after your teams is important if you're not looking after your teams you're a manager rather than a leader but looking after your teams and their welfare and making sure they're doing a great job that's what leadership's all about but to actually be acknowledged for having built that team and to become the team of the year in a a year that every single police department had had to surpass itself to deliver the olympics that was an incredibly proud moment there are very few of us that have had the opportunity to meet and have a conversation with members of the royal family in particularly at the late her majesty queen elizabeth ii now you were awarded the queen's police medal um for your efforts and your work in the torch relay but importantly the queen made some additional comments as to what this award was about can you tell us about what would have been an incredible conversation yeah i mean I, I don't know how she managed to remember details of every single person that was coming in front of her i was the back of a list the qpm is way down the order in terms of mbes and obes so you're sitting towards the back of this queue of 50 people and you eventually get called forward and, and we have a little bit of a laugh at first my, my claim to fame is i actually made the queen laugh because the first thing i did was to apologize for not having been around for her last jubilee because 2012 was the previous Jubilee and I'd been a little bit busy delivering this torture relay. So she had a laugh about that, which was quite nice because I've still got the video and you can see me talking and then her having a little chuckle. And then she awarded me the medal and she said, I understand the, the work that you did on the torture relay, et cetera, et cetera. And then the very last thing she did before she offered her hand, and you're always told at the point at which she offers her hand to shake, she's saying goodbye. Stop talking. 
She's not listening anymore. Somebody else behind you is waiting. So as soon as she offers her hand, but as her hand came out, she said, and I think there were some other matters, some darker matters, I think she said, in North London that you did a few years ago that this also rewards. And I I literally was speechless, and I was supposed to be because he's not supposed to respond to those final comments anyway, because by now she's shaking your hand. And I turned around and walked away. That's not in any of the written reports. I've seen the report that went in for my commendation. It's not in there. We never referred to it during my time after we did that job, after Gentian. It was never referred to in any of my police reports. Somewhere, somehow, she'd been briefed and knew what had been going on and that something else in the background was being recognised that day. And that, that's an incredibly special moment for me. Uh, and... and Heartbroken this year, along with most of the country, for her to die, although it was something that was always going to happen. But for the last few years, I've been involved in planning for the crowds as part of my new job as a crowd safety advisor. So to be able to help for her funeral and that fantastic few days that we had in commemorating her life, that was my my give back, if you like, for her acknowledging the fact that I'd done something earlier in my career that had never really been written down or talked about. So tell us about your post-policing life. You've obviously exited um, policing now and are working uh, in an advisory role and have a company that specialises in helping people in managing crowds and crowd safety uh, to the extent that you were called uh, as a witness to uh, the Manchester Arena Inquiry where you gave evidence as to understanding crowds and, and managing crowds in, in, in large environments. What does your work entail now? So we'd had quite a, a major crowd incident in New Year's Eve in 2005 that led me to try and get additional training and then on very late in life, I won't say what age I was, but I went off towards the end of my police career and did a degree in crowd safety management. And then after I left the police in 2013, I went back to university and did the honours degree in crowd safety with psychology. Set up this company and like a lot of retired officers, I think intended to work maybe one or two days a week to top up the pension. That didn't work at all. It was a failure. Leaving the police and retiring in terms of having more time on my hands was a total failure. The company was successful almost from the start, which I didn't expect. And basically what we do, we get approached by organisations, and they can be anything from music festivals and concerts to shopping centres, railway stations, art galleries, to understand their crowds better, to help them to have better plans for their crowds, to write plans, particularly around emergency behaviours and evacuation. And that's become more and more of an issue with terrorism. That's what we do. And we travel the US, Canada, Europe. I've just come back from a three-week trip in and around Atlanta and the Carolinas, training other people how to understand crowds. We get involved in some incredible events. The, The biggest event we've actually managed on the ground, written the plans for, was a religious event out in Vancouver, the Fasaki. That's about 800,000 people. So getting close to the size of Notting Hill Carnival, but taking that, stripping that right back with the RCMP to its basics of how do we keep the crowd safe? And then we've done, we do safety reviews. And then the biggest in terms of pure numbers, the safety review would have been the Toronto Raptors victory parade in two, uh, 2019 with an expectation when the, Toronto basketball team won 
the US Canadian Championships, an expectation of half a million people coming on the streets and actually about two and a half million turned up. So reviewing the safety of that, and I still work now with the city and with the police out in Toronto and fire and the organisations that have those teams. In fact, I'm on a call with them on Monday. To work out how we do that again, but do it better and keep people safer. And as you're probably aware, I, I was the author of the crowd safety review aspect of Baroness Casey's uh, safety review into what happened at Wembley in 2001, the Euro to, uh, 2020 championships that occurred in 2021, sorry, not 2001, when England got to the final and lost to Italy, but more importantly for us, what was happening outside the ground and the footage that we all saw of those horrible scenes of disorder. <coughs> so my football background, my policing background, but more particularly my experience and knowledge of crowd management all came together to make me able to understand what was going on, why it was happening, and to make recommendations as to how we should be able to avoid it in the future. Well, Eric Stewart, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, the last hour and 20 minutes for me has been um, quite incredible. Uh, I'm in, in awe of what you've achieved. Uh, it's fascinating to understand and hear about the intricacies of planning behind large operations. I think it's also time to stop and remember Keith Blakelock and his family, who I no doubt will be in thoughts this weekend and over the last couple of days that have passed in terms of what happened nearly more than 30 years ago um, in Tottenham. So all I'll finish on is thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you ever so much for your service, which continues on today in terms of keeping people safe at large events right across the globe. Uh, and on behalf of my team and I, we wish you all the best and successes uh, in the coming years ahead. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and, and almost cathartic hour and a half. It's been it's been really nice to be able to talk to you and to share some of those stories. And uh, hopefully they're of use to some people in the future. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.